Hello and welcome to the 12 Minutes of Workplace Health podcast. I'm Harry Bliss, CEO and co-founder of Champion Health. And today we're joined by a friend and a colleague of mine, Nick McClelland. Nick's got a huge amount of expertise in the employee benefits and workplace health arena, having worked for global organizations, supporting them with rolling out really effective well-being programs and strategies. Nick's recently joined the Champion team as the Chief Growth Officer, to be able to support us in achieving our mission even further. And today we're going to talk specifically around the topic of engagement and how well-being can improve into 2023 and beyond. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Hey, Nick, how are you? Hey, Harry, yes, good, thank you. How are you doing? Good, thanks, good, thanks. So excited to, to have a conversation that's going to be public instead of many of our private conversations about workplace health and everything that's going on. But for those that don't know you, could you just provide a bit of a background and intro? There aren't many that don't know you, so yeah, it'd be great to, to just get the, the word and the gospel out there. Of course, I think there's a few that still don't know. So Nick McClelland, I am about 18 years in our industry of, of well-being and benefits and health, Harry. And in that time, I worked for a few of the big technology and consultancy businesses until you plucked me out about, well, October last year, I think, and asked me to come and join the mission here at Champion. So... Prior to that, I had been the Chief Growth Officer at Mercer and the health business prior to that. I'd also been at JLT Employee Benefits and before that, Thompson's Online Benefits, now Darwin. And I have the unique experience of having been acquired by Mercer twice in a period of 13 months, which happened back in about 2018. I've been around a little while. I'm very passionate about the wellbeing space and particularly about driving engagement with employees and having a real impact. So hopefully that gives you a good overview. Awesome. And you've seen it all, really, when it's come through the cycles of well-being during COVID, before COVID, the whole insurance industry. What is it that you saw, especially at your time at previous organizations that's emerging and now into 2023, 2024? Yeah, I think, and I have been around for a little while now, and I think I've seen a few, I guess, phases of well-being really going back maybe as much as sort of 10, 12 years ago, lots of organizations starting to talk about it for the first time. So really thinking about the impact they were having on their people and therefore the need and desire, I hope, to address that through the ways of working and through providing support for employees. But it's fair to say that it's maturing and continuing to mature at the moment. I've seen a few evolutions. I think really over the last sort of five or six years, we've seen a huge number of products and services kind of flood the market which often are like point solutions, deliberately focusing in on a, maybe a pillar of well-being or a particular aspect of well-being. And so we've had a lot of opportunity as employers to offer our people things, stuff to try and support that. I don't think I'm shy about this opinion and that I've said this several times over the last few years and I've been talking about engagement really for about five years in a well-being context. You know, being frank, I think we are not having the value in the market that I think well-being deserves. And so what I mean by that is employees have got lots of things, but they're very hard to find. There's a lot of friction in the process. And so fantastic that organizations have stepped up and offered services, but the experience isn't great. And the engagement rates we probably are all starting to really understand have been pretty poor. If you throw COVID into the mix, there was a big acceleration of those services. So perhaps a little bit fast because of course we needed to do things quite rapidly to support people during that time. But of course, that also meant that there was lots of panic purchasing and lots of things put in place without maybe the diligence that would normally happen in normal times. And so we're now kind of entering this new phase of well-being. And I've been talking a little bit recently with you about sort of 3.0. We had that first phase of awareness, the second phase where we've had lots of products and services. 
I think 3.0 is where organizations start to really get to the point of understanding how to do well-being well. And it's an exciting period, I think, for people like ourselves who are in the industry and trying to drive forward those conversations. But there's a lot of work to do, a lot of understanding that employers need to address now in terms of making that impact to people. When you talk about Wellbeing 3.0, how do you fully integrate it into a business strategy? Because I've seen very few organizations really nail it because sometimes Wellbeing can come at the cost of certain other areas from what the CFOs look into. How do you really integrate it into that strategy of the business? In many ways, it's down to the individual business and the phase they're at on the journey. I don't think many organizations have really entered 3.0. There's very few, and those doing it well often aren't necessarily good at shouting about it from the rooftops, actually, so we don't always hear the best examples. But I think there are a couple of core components. I think it's very well established now that the first and probably most important element is culturally and structurally, you need to have your organization in a good place in order to drive positive well-being outcomes, walking the walk rather than just talking the talk. There's no good putting well-being services and solutions in front of your people if managers and leaders are not behaving in the right way towards their people. They aren't adapting to the modern ways of work. And you don't have some of those cultural foundations, whether it's a positive D&I strategy as an example, or you reward and pay people fairly. These are all kind of core components at the starting point. I think the second bit is really related to leadership. And I think leaders have really stepped up and managers have really stepped up over the past few years. In fact, if anything, we've probably put a huge amount of pressure on those people to support the wider organization and particularly through COVID because we were all under significant pressure to look after anybody we managed and looked after. In that sense, I felt that acutely as a leader and manager when I was in the Mercer organization. And I think now it's about helping those leaders and managers understand their role with well-being and really the power they have, the influence they have on driving HR strategy forward. It's all very well having the kind of permission from leadership to launch a well-being strategy. I think we've seen that happen within many sizes of organization on this sort of adoption and maturity curve. But I think we now need to shift on to leaders actually playing an active role in driving and supporting employees and supporting the, the kind of technological infrastructure. So one, culture, two, leadership. I think three then comes down to, we have to improve the employee experience. There is too much friction for employees today to find the things they need. There is a confusion on the entry point for what well-being looks like. And I think that's partly because there's a lot of confusion to where it sits. So ownership can find itself in benefit and rewards because of the link with benefits. It can find itself in a distinct well-being department, or it can be a side project for somebody within the leadership group. So having clarity on the ownership and then creating an employee experience that makes sense in a kind of consumer-like way that you know, we're all very familiar with having a great experience now with technology in particular, whether it's our Netflixes and our Amazons and our Apples and whatever else we have. We need to really think like that when it comes to the employee experience in the workplace around wellbeing. That means clarity on entry point. It means really simple, straight through pathways to the support that people need in a really personalized way and in a really timely way for when they need it most. Sum it up, those three areas, culture, leadership, employee experience, as your basics, I think absolutely need to be looked at if companies are going to jump into 3.0 of wellbeing. It's almost a bit like what Champion Health do that, mate. <laughs> do you think I might have, might have thought about that a little bit? <laughs> but I, I couldn't agree more, especially as a consumer of technology. You mentioned the Apples, the Netflix, the Spotify's, things that are single click, everything in one unified place. And I spoke to a friend recently that was struggling with their mental health, didn't know what their EAP was, didn't know that it was free counselling offered. I was certain their organisation would provide it. 
I told him to go and try and find it. It took him a couple of days. It took him hundreds of clicks. And for someone experiencing anxiety or depression, that's a really big issue. And that's one of the biggest areas I think that well-being needs to progress to really bring it into what the consumer, as an employee almost in this instant, would be expecting from the Apples, the Amazons, the, the Netflixes, for example. I couldn't agree more, Harry. And I think practical tips for those who do own well-being, I think it's really taking ownership of that experience conversation. I think Austin, and again, this is just through experience of having worked with lots of HR teams and reward teams and benefit teams over the years in particular. When you're making decisions about the services and products and technology you have in place, there's lots of component parts to that today, particularly if you're a big organization. You've got a procurement department, a legal department, an IT department, and everybody has a perspective. And sometimes those perspectives aren't always aligned to creating the best experience. I think we will always fail to kind of really get that value from what people are offering unless we can address that within the sort of project planning that happens on the strategies that the companies are developing. So it's, it's an exciting opportunity, but seizing it is this really big next step for companies, I think. And you mentioned seizing it. And what role does data play within here? We hear a lot about data and often the data that we find in well-being is quite reactive when it comes to absence data, even staff turnover data within that. What role does data play? How do we gather the data? How do we, in a really proactive way, look at the whole organization in terms of well-being and performance? I think, again, this comes back down to thinking about the importance of engagement because it's a bit glib and quite simple thinking. But if you don't have people utilizing the services that you offer, whether it's poor engagement on an EAP or whether you have launched a variety of apps and you don't have engagement with those you're not getting any real tangible data to make decisions other than, as you rightly say, Harry, the kind of reactive after the fact stuff. The after the fact data always plays a good role in that picture, but the part we're missing is the ability to prevent and, and actually enable companies to get ahead of that kind of ticking clock that happens with everybody at various points, whether it's through the mental health lens, the financial health lens, or, or any of the pillars, frankly. And so really understanding how people are feeling and capturing that information as early as possible and on a regular cycle is hugely important because that type of data, particularly around employee sentiment, around how people are feeling about their own personal health, it has two advantages for me. One, it allows individuals to feel like they're taking the first step to ownership themselves, like taking ownership and control by having themselves go through a process of documenting how they are currently dealing about their, their well-being through as broad a possible range as you can. And secondly, it's more likely to have a preventative nature in its quality as well. So if we don't get that experience right up front and don't give people this type of simple entry point to capture that, the ability for you as an organization to actually gather useful data that's going to help preventative well-being, I think is severely hampered. And you'll end up always then looking again at the reactive area. That's the importance of this in the context of data for me. Fantastic. Nick, podcast is always too short, but I know that you're posting a lot of amazing content on LinkedIn. So I'd encourage anyone to connect with Nick as well on LinkedIn. Big thanks for joining us today on the 12 Minutes of Workplace Health podcast. Thank you very much, Harry. Cheers. For more exclusive insights and content around workplace well-being, please subscribe to this podcast and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode.